Well, good morning, church. So as we continue to focus on this season of Advent and waiting, we're going to to kind of use the beginning of the Gospel of Luke as the the way we're focusing on that experience 2,000 years ago, which also gives us a sense of what it means to be people who aren't waiting for Jesus' first arrival, but we absolutely are longing and waiting for Jesus' second arrival, for his second coming. What does it mean to be people of faith who can see God present and at work in our world, in our lives, who have experienced Jesus, and yet there's a a piece of us, right? There's a, a place in our hearts where we long for something more. And it's not by accident. It's, it's not that you should settle for the experiences of God that you've had, for the sense of Jesus that you've already tasted. That holy unsettledness is from God. We're not supposed to look at the state of our world and say, yeah, okay, this is enough. We're supposed to long for something more. And so last week we focused on this idea of being people who aren't settling, of being people who are waiting on purpose, being people who choose hope. That it would be easy for us to just give up, but that's not who we're called to be. And so because we're using Luke as our starting place, we opened up to this story about an elderly priest named Zechariah who has a once in a lifetime opportunity to represent God's people. He goes into the, the temple at the appointed time and he advocates in prayer on their behalf. He makes this incense offering. And what should be this this moment in his career where he realizes how far he's come and he's able to, to do what he's always longed to do as a priest, God's not really caught up in all of that for Zechariah. He's not really focused on his career moment. He wants to talk to Zechariah about something that he's given up on. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth have longed to have a son. And it's a dream that they've decided is never going to happen for them. And in this moment, that's what God wants to talk about. So he sends an angel. And and Gabriel tells Zechariah, you know that hope that you've given up on? God hasn't given up on it. And you're going to have this son. And he talks about all these different details about who the son's going to be and what God is going to do through this child. But Zechariah can't get past just the opening of his heart to the idea that this, this dream, it's alive again. And so he says to this angel, how can I know? How can I be certain? And Gabriel's response to that is, because I'm Gabriel, because I'm an an angel, I have come from the heart of God, from the throne room of heaven to tell you something, and what I'm telling you, you can rely on, you can depend on. But there's still something in Zechariah that makes it clear to Gabriel that he doesn't believe, that he's not really hoping. So Gabriel says, you know what? You're not going to be able to speak until what I've promised you is starting to happen, is starting to come true. And so We find this reality, not just for Zechariah, but for us too. When we give up, when we lose our hope, we also lose our voice. A priest wasn't just supposed to be able to speak to to God on the people's behalf. He was supposed to be able to speak to the people on God's behalf. 
And Gabriel says, if you don't, if you don't have an ability to hope, then I don't want you to have the ability to speak. Now here's the question, right? We're, we're shifting over from this idea of hope to the idea of peace. And what I want you to think about is as Zechariah leaves that divine encounter and he can't speak, so he has to either write or do some kind of sign language to, to make himself understood, and he tells everybody, I've had this vision, I've had this moment, he can't verbally express himself for what has to have been close to a year. He can't speak. And what I want you to think about is, if you couldn't speak for that long, right, for almost a year, what do you think you might say once you could speak again? I mean, we could go a couple of different directions with this. You know, you might be keeping a tally of all the arguments you wished you'd been able to have. So the moment you're able to speak, you say, you know what? I've been wanting to say something to you for four months. Right? Hopefully, that's not what we would do if we were able to speak. Have you ever noticed that you don't really think about speaking until you're not allowed to? Until you're in a situation where you're not supposed to? Suddenly, it's all you want to do is talk. Can you imagine having that feeling for almost a year? Now, now here's what's interesting. So he can't speak the entire time that Elizabeth is pregnant. And then she gives birth. And you might think, well, yeah, he's going to be able to speak then. No. It's eight days later when they're taking little John to be circumcised. And they're telling people what his name's going to be. And they know what his name's supposed to be because Gabriel told them what his name's supposed to be. John means God has found favor. God has shown favor. God has come to help. That's what his name means. But no one in their family has that name. And they're used to giving a, a new baby a name from the family. And so they go to Elizabeth and they say, what are you going to name him? On, in this, this special moment, on this day when he's going to be circumcised, he's going to be told who he's going to be. You should name him Zachariah. And she says, no, his name's going to be John. And they're nervous about it, and they feel like maybe, you know, because Zechariah can't speak, they haven't even talked about it, so they turn to him, and he asks for a tablet, and he writes the statement, his name is John. And the moment he says that, in writing, he's able to talk. And we're about to read what he says for the first time in nearly a year. So let, let's read these words together now in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is what he said. Praise the Lord God of Israel. Hasn't spoken in nearly a year. His first word is hallelujah. All right? Praise the Lord the God of Israel because he has come to help and has delivered his people. He has granted that we would be rescued from the power of our enemies so that... We could serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in God's eyes for as long as we live. Okay, all of that is in the past tense. Right? He's saying God has already done this. That's how confident he is. Now, he wasn't this confident several months ago when Gabriel told him what was going to happen. He couldn't find it in him to hope. But now he's so confident, he talks about what God is going to do as if it's already been accomplished. But then he shifts to talking over John 
And he talked about John's future, right? What God's going to do through John. So he says, you child will be called prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. All future, right? You will tell his people how to be saved. Now he's already talked about God rescuing and I I want you to pay close attention to this because so many of the people surrounding Zechariah in the first century, when they heard a prophet say God was going to show up to deliver us, they were thinking God was going to send a military commander to settle all the scores. So when he says you will tell his people how to be rescued, how to be saved, it's about through forgiveness. It's it's not the kind of redemption they've been expecting. This disappointment, this misunderstanding will be at the heart of Jesus' life and ministry. He is disappointing as a Messiah, not spiritually, but from a military standpoint, right? He's not going to, to reshuffle the political state of affairs, and they want him to. But from the beginning, everybody who's filled with the Holy Spirit who's talking about him, they make it clear He is going to save us. He is going to deliver us. He is going to rescue us from sin. Not from the people we hate. And that's a disappointment to God's people. And I have a feeling that first century Jews are not the only followers of God. Right? They're not the only generation of God's people who if it were up to them, if if they were asking God for the kind of leader they want, they want a leader who's going to defeat everyone they don't like, right? But that's not who John's gonna be, and it's not who his Messiah is gonna be, right? So he's gonna tell them through the forgiveness of their sins, because of our God's deep compassion, the dawn from heaven will break upon us to give light to those who are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide us on the path of peace. To guide us on the path of peace. We need God to rescue us. Full stop, right? We need God to rescue us. But in Zechariah's song, we're reminded that we need God to rescue us from our enemies more than we need to destroy our enemies. Look, I'm not naive. I know we live in a world where sometimes armed conflict is necessary. But church, armed conflict is always a necessary evil. It's a nightmare. War is a nightmare. And it doesn't just do something destructive to the people we're having to attack. It does something to us to have to do that to anyone else in our lives. You talk to anybody who's served in the military or, or a police officer or any, anybody in our world who at times is forced to, to pick up arms because it's come to that. And it does something to you. And we need God to intervene and step in and rescue us from the people who would do us harm so that we don't have to, all of us, carry the nightmare of what maybe we feel like we had to do. And I have to believe this push and pull in this text 
where everybody gets to hear Zechariah talk about God rescuing and delivering from the enemies and the people who hate us, man, they had to be ready to go because they had a list of people. And Rome was at the top of that list. They had mistreated them. They had oppressed them. They were continuing to mistreat and oppress them. They wanted to be saved in a way that would shuffle, would just change everything, right? It would, it would resettle. Who was calling the shots? Who was in charge? Who had all the power to decide what was going to happen in the world? And here's the thing. It's not that Jesus doesn't directly impact everything that's happening in the world. It's that thinking only about this world and our power in it is actually thinking too small. It's settling in ways that, that we don't understand. That God's vision is bigger than us fighting battles and winning all those battles, God is promising us a future where we don't have to lose our souls in waging battles anymore. That's the peace that Jesus brings. It's not less than what we're hoping for. It's better. It's more. But it takes a form we don't expect And it comes to us in a timeline that we don't get to control. God doesn't rescue us through the power of forcefulness. God rescues us through the power of forgiveness. God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of the people in our lives who we may be tempted to try to destroy because of the harm that they've caused us emotionally, spiritually. Right? You and I consistently want to get back. We want to get even, but we don't realize what that's doing to us spiritually in the process. God wants to rescue us, in other words, from revenge, from vengeance, from a life that's filled with bitterness and anger and trying to make things the way we want them to be through our power, through our force of will. And God says, you know what? Sin is at the root of all of this conflict. Sin is at the root of every bad thing that anyone's ever done to anybody else. And I have come to deliver you from your sin and from having to get even with someone who sinned against you. The peace of God is the power of forgiveness at work in our lives, set loose in our lives and set loose in our world. And think about how challenging it is on the other side of war, on the other side of physical violence, how difficult reconciliation and forgiveness are. It's the hardest thing we ever have to do. When we've been killing each other's children, God says, he makes it possible for us to forgive each other for it. I don't want to have to forgive like that. But that's the pathway to peace. Now, I think one of the reasons we just dismiss that as a possibility is we don't tell the whole truth of what forgiveness requires. We act like forgiveness is no matter what you've done, I just say, it's okay, it's fine, let's move on. That's not, that's not forgiveness. That's dismissal of harm and hurt. True forgiveness is Restoration. It's reconciliation. It's doing whatever it takes to prove to the other person the way I hurt you before, I promise to never hurt you again. To do everything I can to make sure that doesn't happen. To make restitution if it's at all possible. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, in a world like ours, 
I think one of the reasons we're tempted to give up on the possibility of peace is it's easier to just hate people, isn't it? Than to forgive them. It's easier to, to pretend like some group of people is the, is the one reason everything else in our world is falling apart when the reality is the line between light and dark doesn't run between us and them. It runs down the middle of every human heart. God in Christ has come to deliver us from that, to set us free. We've got to receive that forgiveness and then we've got to find a way to share it. I love that image at the end where he says, you know, there's this light from heaven that's going to break in. That's what it's going to take, by the way, for this to even take place. Is for Jesus to break in and show us a different way. To turn the other cheek. To die for people who are trying to kill him. And with his last words, asking God to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. How would you even know that's possible if you didn't see it happen? Right, but here's, here's what he says at the end. We need a light that's stronger than the dark. We need a life that is stronger than death. We need a peace that's stronger than any danger. Now, here's why I think that's so important. Is it's one thing if we try to say there's a day coming and we need to live like that day's already here when all of our disagreements and our conflict and our wars, it'll all stop. And then we'll have peace. I believe that's part of the promise that's, at the heart of this song. But, but the reason that we're being told what's going to happen in the future is it's already beginning to happen through Christ. And so we have to choose to believe that in a world filled with darkness and death and danger, we're not denying any of this. I, I think when we try to tell somebody they should be at peace because there's light and there's life, and there's a, a, you know, a way for us to experience that peace from God. We're not going to help anybody experience the truth of that if we're only telling half-truths. We need the full truth. You are in danger. You're in danger relationally. You're in danger emotionally. You're in danger at times physically. The peace of God doesn't ask us to deny those dangers that we're facing. The peace of God, the promise of that peace, the reality of that peace, just the foretaste of that peace is enough to be stronger than all of that danger. That it will carry us through. When we don't know how to make peace, we believe in it. We trust in it and it starts to happen because God's the one who wants it to happen and if we're open to it, he always shows up and he does exactly what he's promised to do. I guess what I'm trying to say here is while we wait for peace, we need to be a community. As a church, we should be the place where God's peace can break in because we're waiting for it, we're looking for it, we're expecting it, and then we recognize it when it starts, when the opening happens, right? There's always an opening in a conflict where somebody could speak up for peace. But you don't see that opening if you're focused on settling the score and defeating the people that you hate. I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you know history, you know far too often that the church has been the cause of the lack of peace in our world. I want us to repent of that. And instead of being accidentally in the way 
of God making peace, we'd do anything we could to help him, to be open to it, to beg for our place in the story of peace to be at the center. We're going to sing now, and as we do, our shepherds and their wives will be standing at these three main exits uh, near the double doors. They're there to pray with you, to talk with you, to walk alongside of you, to be community to you. So if you came this morning and your soul isn't at peace, you need wisdom, if you need guidance, if you just need a Christian couple to talk with and pray with, please go to them as together we stand and sing.